0: This time, we're continuing our look at the Reboot Trilogy of the Planet of the Apes franchise and Dawn, and along the way we ask, what are the parallels between the Simeon Flu and COVID-19, who is the real villain of the movie, and is this a realistic depiction of a societal collapse? Home. Family. Podcast. This is Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts Chris Rupp and I am joined by my friend and co-host
1: the Green Eyes, Sean Michael Culp.
0: So you would be the among the first generation of apes that would have the green eyes, right? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 selling it because it's
1: we've seen green eyes and now there's blue eyes. I mean, I feel like red eyes is just like that's saying that I'm high as balls all the time, and that's that's a lie. So, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with green. I like that. The original.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're the you're the OG member of the ones who were infected with uh, ALZ113.
1: Yes, yes, and yes. Speaking of infected, right on, Chris. This is actually basically how this film takes off. So, actually, why don't we? Um, dive right into Dawn and we can expand upon it more. You give us a synopsis.
0: All right. So 10 years after a pandemic has wiped out most of humanity, Caesar and his community of apes live in peace. That is until a group of survivors stumble upon them and force Caesar to confront where his loyalties lie and where he's placed his trust. Very nice. Very nice.
1: That's, that's, that. Perfect. (laughs) Ooh, the drama.
0: So yeah, heading into a sequel for Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes definitely ratchets up the the tension, ratchets up the stakes, and really kind of the film has this really big emotional anchor, which we'll explore in more detail as the episode goes on. But it's. I mean, I think I was just watching this movie and just constantly reminded of what it, what was truly at stake for all of these characters involved in this movie.
1: Oh, I'm definitely gonna back you on that one. You can tell, I think, the how they wrote this film out with the direction. I mean, it's perfect. You can see, at any point, I feel like, in this film, you can side with either the apes or the humans for what they're fighting for because the humans don't want to be extinct, And neither do the apes, but there's so much PTSD on the ape side to where they can't trust the humans, and then like it's just there's just like a war of trust and betrayal. It's a pretty fantastic uh, plot.
0: Well, it's a universal struggle for respect and for the fundamental right to exist. That's that comes into clash between the apes and the humans at various points in the movie. But we're just constantly reminded that. While these two sides aren't exactly actively seeking out a war against each other, that's what it feels like it's all coming to at some point.
1: Yes, this this slow buildup to tensions rising until it finally breaks, the levee breaks. And before we dive into that, do you want to, how did you feel about the opening scenes? Because it pans open and it shows like the globe slowly being infected. How did you feel, especially with the pandemic, the past basically two years Did that spark any emotions
0: yeah i i just got a real deep sense of melancholy because you could see some of those news snippets and almost think that this movie was made sometime last year at the height of the pandemic and just that that cold open just reminding everybody of how it how it was we came to arrive at this point heading heading into the film is is really heartbreaking it, it reminds you of just what humanity has lost i mean it, there's no mention of you know an ape commune you know living somewhere in california all it mentions is that you know the, the apes escaped and the virus was traced back to genesis and then it's that pull back that slow reveal of caesar's face as he's leading a hunting party and it just drops us boom right into the action of the movie
1: right in the thick of it it's it's a great opening mm-hmm. and i like you had those same emotions where it it actually made me feel pretty pretty actually pretty happy. Yeah, um, obviously this is a movie and the point is the spread of the virus to take over, kill humanity, etc. Um, that's the you know the fallout of that. But it made me pretty happy for our response to COVID. You know, with the vaccinations and everything going on, it actually made me pretty happy. You know, like while you know there is a new variants coming out though we aren't experiencing pandemonium on the level of dawn of the planet of the apes right there's not billions of people dying so it kind of it kind of in a way it made me feel like kind of happy like sweet we're gonna survive this we're gonna pull through we're not gonna be ruled by apes
0: I mean, there's still, I mean, anything's possible. I mean, we would have thought that COVID was eradicated a few months ago with the vaccine, but now it's the, the Delta variant <laughs> has come back with a vengeance. So now I just kind of feel like we're in a COVID two, the revenge, you know?
1: We're we're in Groundhog Day. These damn people just won't wear their masks. So we just keep getting these freaking... <laughs>
0: yeah, just feel like Bill Murray. So there's COVID-19 cases again. <laughs>
1: Again, how much further down the alphabet do we need to go? (laughs) uh, But going back to this movie, um, opening was great. It was fantastic. Let's talk about how did this film come to be?
0: Okay, so we've got a new director this time around. Rupert Wyatt was the director of the first film. He was concerned about a lot of... Uh, like scheduling conflicts, because the studio, you know, they saw they had a hit in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and they immediately wanted a sequel. They wanted a 2014 sequel, you know, three years after the release of the first film. And Rupert Wyatt was just like, "Whoa, that's too fast for me." And then he left the project. And then in comes director matt reeves and before this he had only directed two films he had done cloverfield which we have previously discussed on the show and he did let me in which is a american remake of a great uh i think it's a danish horror film called let the right one in about a little boy that befriends a a vampire who's in the body of a little girl it's a fantastic movie so he was brought into uh, helm to take over the directing duties and then then the ball got rolling on all the casting like Andy Serkis was the first person to sign back on and then you had the problem of casting for Koba because as we see in the movie the character of Koba finally gets an expanded role we see him as a trusted individual inside of Caesar's inner circle
1: yes Koba I would say is one of you. You you get like a taste of him at the end of the first film, and you know based on his mangled face, right? The exterior, his, how his looks are, you're like, oh, this is a bad ape. But actually, they humanize him in this film when he talks a lot about his torture. Yeah, so Co- I think they they did a great job with the casting.
0: Yeah, Koba definitely has reasons to be distrustful of humans. I mean, like you were saying, you can see on his face right away that you know he's had something happen to him that was you know humans were the cause behind it so he has every reason in the world to hate humans distrust them and question caesar's motivations for wanting to help the humans and i think coba was played as brilliant as andy circus was in the first film i think that's mm-hmm. how toby cabell was in this film he was brilliant as coba I'm going to totally back you on that. The scene where
1: um, Koba talks to Caesar's son at the fireplace, where he's like telling him, you know, I just don't trust humans. I worry that they're going to kill your father and all that. I actually believed Koba, that he actually deeply cared for Caesar, even though they end up, and we'll talk later about when we talk about villains with him, but I actually, it, it really struck a chord. You actually care for him. You you don't, you begin to understand his motivations for why he's so distrusting of the humans. That he's actually caring for Caesar's interests. That he's worried that he's just, he's in love with the humans, you know?
0: Well, yeah, you, you get the sense that Koba cares for caesar but that scene that you mentioned is just so deeply manipulative like you see koba preying on blue Eyes' emotions because he's at the at that point in the film he's estranged from his father and he you know doesn't understand why he wants to interact with the humans so much and it's just you you acknowledge koba cares but at the same time you understand that this is a deeply manipulative part of this character
1: Oh, see I took it the other way that he that's why he was like you have to protect your father, you know. That's why I was like, "Oh, okay. So he's he believes that Caesar's like not jaded enough, but he's like trying to tell his son, you know, don't trust him as much as he does." <laughs> but maybe maybe I missed that. <laughs> which, but you know, it is what it is.
0: <laughs> exactly. But that's
1: cool. Yeah.
0: But that's cool. But it's uh, yeah, those are those are the primary, you know, ape actors in performance capture. But we've also got Jason Clark as Malcolm, uh, the legendary Gary Oldman as Dreyfus. We've got Carrie Russell as Ellie, mm-hmm. Cody Smith McPhee as Alex. He's Malcolm's son. And then we've got uh, Kirk Acevedo as Carver, you know, from a band of brothers fame. And then just a, the general douchebag of the movie, I would call him.
1: <laughs> the general douchebag Yes he is He is the general douchebag There's
0: always that one guy In these post-apocalypse movies That always has to mess it up For everybody else <sighs> And that's Carver here
1: I know It's it's almost like a trope I feel like it's gonna be a trope Because he just hated them for You know the first time Okay He pulls a pistol on him He shoots the ape Right on Understood But after that Like bringing the gun And then just freaking, I mean, freaking out at Caesar's son. Like, to me, that was just, at that point, I'm like, oh, this guy's a trope. He's just advancing the plot.
0: Pulls a shotgun on a baby. A baby chimp. (laughs) Like, dude, come on. What's your beef against a baby chimp? (laughs) The
1: magnum at the beginning wasn't enough. He's like, I need to bring a shotgun this time.
0: (laughs) Oh, God. And then one more casting that we've got James Franco that appears in that uncredited cameo when Caesar is looking at the video camera. So, yeah, James Franco from the first film comes back because he didn't he didn't want any part of a sequel after Rupert Wyatt left. And it's set 10 years in the future. So and after the the virus had ravaged the country, I think it's pretty self-explanatory what happened to Will Rodman at the uh, during the uh, events uh, that take place before this film.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Franco, they asked him if he was coming back, and he said no. He said that I read at least a couple articles that because he was on, quote-unquote, ground floor of the virus, he died from it, whereas the survivors are people who are immune, which, I mean, I, I actually am glad that he's not in the film because I think he would have taken away from the plot too much. Um, I think it, and you know, with Caesar coming back, and seeing the home and everything, and seeing that video of uh, James Franco, that, that served enough. We didn't need Franco in this film. I think it just would have detracted. He served his purpose in the first one.
0: Yeah, I agree. And it, it allows for the opportunity to introduce characters like Malcolm, like Dreyfus, and like Ellie you know, into the film and inject them with new stories and new, new journeys to go on with these people.
1: Now, how did you feel about Malcolm? So, Jason Clark, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I take Jason Clark as the everyday man. He, if you want to film, he's kind of like John Cusick, like when he made 2012. If you want a guy who's going to serve the plot, but he's not going to, he's not a character actor and he's not going to add, like, he's not going to wow you with his chops, right? He's going to just tell the story. I feel like Jason Clark is that type of guy. You're never gonna like. I just feel like you're never gonna see a film where you're like, "Wow, Jason Clark, he just wow, he moved me." He's no Heath Ledger from Dark Knight. How do you feel?
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I think he definitely lends a sort of relatable quality to um, to his characters, and especially with Malcolm. I mean, you can you can also make the argument that he's basically a carbon copy of. The character of will rodman just without the college degrees but yeah there's just something very relatable to to malcolm i mean he approaches the apes with like a cautious optimism he doesn't he doesn't say oh i'm gonna be best friends with them but he's very he's very careful in how he approaches them he's very respectful and he knows that he th- his colony and his his family and his friends they can't survive without at least some help from the apes and I don't think he's thinking Mm -hmm. that far down the future when he speaks with Caesar and tries to rebuild the dam, but he knows somewhere in the back of his mind, like this is the way that we move forward. I mean, nobody's saying that we live in harmony and doves fly everywhere, but we have to find a way to coexist and exist in a society where the rules are no longer the same.
1: And they were so close to existing. I think in a way like, um, the cast, to me, it felt very familiar. Like, it wasn't... it all, It's not like the film was a carbon copy of the first one, right? Because it wasn't. there. I just found with this film that the apes were the m- most interesting element of the film, and the humans, it almost felt like we were in Groundhog Day, where it was just like kind of a rehash of how the humans acted in the first one. You know, it was the... Uh, Malcolm's wife or partner, she was the same. She didn't really do much. Kinda was there to help Caesar when he was injured, but you know it was just kind of like a continuous. It, it there wasn't really anyone that stood out to me on the human. Even Gary Oldman, I felt like he was kind of wasted in a way. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I agree to to some extent. I I the cast does has a, a great familiarity to it. I mean, but I'm. I mean Carrie Russell's character I mean it's revealed through Carver that uh that she did work at the CDC so I mean you can only imagine what she saw as the yeah. as the pandemic was breaking out in this world and in how she responded to it and we learn uh, when she's speaking with Alex that she had a daughter who died during the pandemic <sighs> and I mean it in any movie that Gary Oldman is in he's easily the anchor of every movie it's no longer yes it's no longer a planet of the apes movie if gary oldman is like the star of it it's a gary oldman movie and computer generated apes just happen to be in it i mean yeah i i totally agree i would have liked to see seen more of his character but i think those snippets those pictures that he looks through on the tablet of his of his children i think we we can assume that they that they died during the pandemic and his oh, past as yeah. a military oh. man i think i mean he's easily the most interesting character of the film that doesn't get the benefit of a backstory and then kirk Acevedo, like we said just is he's a good actor but he really manages to pull off that that smarmy look about him I mean pulling I mean shooting uh, Ash at the beginning of the movie, pulling the shotgun on a baby and just being, you know, a general <laughs> douchebag. It's like it, there's a great like it almost feels yeah. like this is like just like somebody's friend group that you've dropped into. It's very easy to relate to these characters. It's easy to sympathize with them and it's and it's just the film is just perpetuated with a lot of these very sweet, tender moments with all of these characters. That it's mm-hmm. it's impossible to ignore and they're seared in your memory.
1: Interesting. Okay. Well, that's. It. Oh, well, I disagree. <laughs> with Carver.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. I. Thought, I, I that's didn't okay though. Why do you? Carver, why do you
1: disagree? So with Carver, his character, I um, I just usually you want like in the first film, the Draco Malfoy, the actor that played Draco Malfoy. He got his comeuppets, and you're like, sweet, he got his comeuppets, right? He was that trope evil human that just wanted to, was the douchebag to apes. Carver was kind of the same, but when he got his comeuppets um, and he was killed, I just didn't feel like it was earned in a way because he was still sitting sitting in the car. And, I mean, yeah, he was killed, but I wanted or I would hope that his character would be more than what he was, you know? than just this guy that pulls a gun twice on the apes and then he's sent out of the village to sit in a car. So to me, that was just such a, it wasn't like a waste, but it just, to move the plot, like when he died, it just, it didn't feel like it was earned as much as like the other guy. You know, because the other dude like tortured the apes, he threw the food. You learned a little bit more about him. And why. so it was an easy swish. Whereas with this guy, I was like, well, he was scared the first time, he was scared the second time. Yay, he doesn't he's kind of dicey with that. I'm more concerned why they even brought him back to the camp. If they knew that if Malcolm knew that this guy had like had a problem with the apes, why is he bringing him on his team? So that's more like a moral issue with Malcolm, not picking his team wisely. You know, so like when this guy got killed, I was like, I really don't care because Um It's like At the time, Koba's just going on this murderous rampage. (laughs) So to me, it just didn't feel as much earned. It just felt like an easy kill. And it didn't really move me as much, at least for Carver. But the other characters, I did feel like you, how it did feel familiar. They did tell a nice story in a way. I just wish we could have gotten more. But, you know, with this film, it was already two hours. And it was really more about the apes than the humans. So it was enough. It was enough. I just wish there was a little bit more Gary Oldman.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think we can all agree. I mean, every film could use a little more Gary Oldman.
1: He's just so good. Like, when he's staring at the pictures of his family, he starts crying. I'm like, God, there he is. That hell of an actor, man. You know? But how, before we get into Gary Oldman, because I guess that's more villain talk, how would you, how'd you like the post-apocalyptic San Francisco? I was loving it when you see the apes follow the humans back to their lair, I guess. That was pretty fantastic that you saw the overgrown bushes and it just it looked like it was a lived in post-apocalyptic world. It was fantastic CGI.
0: I thought it was great. I mean, personally, if I'm speaking honestly, like I think it was just a bit too much like um, like they're in the forest. They find that, that that. that way station and there's just trees and grass overgrowing and like it's only been 10 years since the the (laughs) flu the the since the pandemic took effect in this world and you mean to tell me that trees are just growing left and right in the middle of san francisco and brush has just overtaken this gas station for some inexplicable reason i just feel like it was a bit too much like yes (laughs) there can you expect, like, if if a city is totally abandoned, can you expect some, like, grass or nature to return? Yes, you can. Should you expect it to to this extent, 10 years afterwards? No, you shouldn't.
1: <laughs> right? Abandoned lots in Chicago don't look this bad, you know? It's like, I get that. I get that. It did look pretty, though, for what it was. Well, but yeah, it did look like it was longer I would say, yeah, it didn't seem like it was 10 years. It seemed more it was like 25, 30 years, you know? Well, yeah,
0: it is, it, all it does is just exaggerate the point and hammer it home for the viewers and say, look, we are far enough removed from when the pandemic started. Look at all the, the nature that's come back to the cities. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. They, did, they, they honed in. They wanted to let people know. Maybe that, that was just like a director. I feel like that was a, that was a director choice.
0: I mean, I don't know. I mean, all, uh, all it did was really just get the point across that, yes, we are living in a post-apocalyptic world. You know, that's we have a, a faction of humans and a faction of apes that are just ready to, to kill each other.
1: <laughs> True that. How did you feel about Caesar? Because, we, like you said, the thing opened up. The movie opens up, and they're hunting, like, animals, deer, I think. And you see Caesar. He's covered in... I would say like war makeup, his face is white, he's got the thing. He seemed to me as a pretty damn good leader. Like the apes all rallied behind him. He seemed pretty democratic. How did you feel?
0: You know, I think Caesar spent more time in this movie answering questions about his leadership than he did anything else in this movie. Like I feel like he spent no time actually leading and more time answering to his subordinates why he's in charge or why he's doing the things he's doing for the humans. It's like, I mean, yes, it's safe to assume that he's been leading this community for the last 10 years. And by all accounts, it seemed like it was pretty solid leadership. You know, he has that, yeah, that moment with Maurice, you know, explaining how far they've come, what they've had to endure. And, and then he's facing these major challenges all because Malcolm's group showed up in the forest one day. And all of a sudden he gets pushback from Koba and his son and other members of his council. It's like, come on. Like, I've been leading you for the last 10 years. Why are you doubting me now? Where is this coming from?
1: Right? Because they, well, it was interesting because they talked about saying they haven't seen humans in about two years. And they hope they they probably killed each other. So I was kind of curious to see how they acted with the humans the years prior, you know? Like, how? what was that like? Was it, was it the same response? Were the humans always trying to kill the apes? You know, or was it something else? They're trying to kill each other because I agree with you. It was like 10 years and all of a sudden, you know, who are you? How are you fit to lead? It's like, dude, I built a city in the woods. Like, what else do you want? We have a community that's thriving. Like, <laughs> how much more proof of being a great leader do you need?
0: Yeah, guys, I tell one human in his group to leave our forests, and all of a sudden you think I'm a bad leader and that we should go kill them all? Like, come on
1: here. <laughs> I know. Koba, Koba was just bloodthirsty, man. He just wanted to murder all the humans that did him wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, he he. I wouldn't even say he gets chummy with Malcolm. He's definitely cordial. Towards Malcolm, and then everybody thinks, Oh, Caesar loves humans more than apes. Like, where are you getting that from? All oh, because he's allowing the humans to rebuild a dam that's near their community. Like, that's not, it's not, nobody's saying Caesar loves the humans more than apes. I mean, that's, that's without question. No. Caesar would do anything for his family, but just to have to continually answer those questions about what his motivations are. I mean, I was surprised he didn't beat the crap out of Koba earlier in the movie.
1: I know, and that's, so, because Caesar, he's pretty logical, and in the end, I think he made the right choice, right? Letting the humans rebuild the dam, I think that was the right choice, because it would essentially allow them to coexist, and they almost do, because you see, once they rebuild the dam, the power goes on, and they have the moment, the humans are partying it up, Gary Oldman's happy, and then Koba just ruins it for everyone, because he's just a jerk, and... I think Caesar as a leader just he, I think he made the right choice. I really do. And I agree with you. I wish I just think he was a patient ape and he he wanted to be a good leader and he wanted to be open and allow people to express their opinions. So maybe maybe for movie's sake and argument's sake, this is the first time the apes really got exposure to humans. Maybe for argument's sake, that's why they're all like questioning him, you know?
0: Well, yeah, at least for an extended period of time. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Caesar's absolutely thinking of the long game here. He knows if he lets them repair the dam and get the power back on, they never have to deal with humans again after this. So, so it's, no. it's in everyone's best interest to let this go smoothly and let them get down back off the mountain, go back to San Francisco and just leave everybody alone. Like, that's the yeah. end game here is just to make sure everybody lives in peace. And they almost got it.
1: <laughs> they really did and i and i get koba's sentiments yes carver uh he shot one guy he shot an ape right and i don't know if that ape died or not but he did shoot an ape at the beginning so i get why you know that's first blood right to quote <laughs> to reference i guess a rambo movie
0: they drew um, first blood not me
1: <laughs> exactly so maybe so maybe he's stuck in that because he shot an ape he drew a gun on a baby Okay, but I don't know if that's worthy of wanting to completely obliterate the human race and enslave them because one ape's death. But who knows, you know, he's a bitter ape. He has, a he struggled on, he's got a lot of scars. So
0: I get, maybe this is just his reckoning. Yeah, I mean, Carver, I mean, yes, definitely, is he a bad guy but is he the bad guy in the movie probably not i mean you can definitely make the case that the events of the movie don't really kick off without him shooting uh ash at the beginning but he's also confrontational with everybody he brings up ellie's dead daughter he routinely calls it the simian flu which just it's like it's not the simian flu which i feel like just again (laughs) another parallel to covid times (laughs) but yeah and then and then we give enter like Gary Oldman as maybe a possible other villain in the movie, but I mean I don't again like it's the motivations behind these these characters Koba and, and Dreyfus because all they really want is to make sure that their communities are safe, but they're both very. Yes they're frightened they're terrified of what could happen. They're ter- Koba's terrified of the humans destroying everything and Dreyfus is terrified of the apes coming to destroy everything. And he really doesn't begin he I don't consider him a villain until the end until he sacrifices himself with the detonator and kills himself and two of his compatriots and tries to kill Malcolm. Yeah,
1: and that's and so that's why I didn't care for dreyfus gary oldman's performance the second half of the film because the first half he was just so reasonable as a human this film almost seems like two parts like the first one was so much more slowed down a lot of dialogue a lot of emotion then the second one second part it's just like very actiony ape battle and it just it, it just now yes dreyfus said three days or else we're gonna Attack the apes. So he did make his motivations clear. But I guess I just didn't believe it. I didn't think he was like this. Or I guess it was just too rushed. To me, I just felt like it would take a little bit more than the death of two humans. You know, I guess, I don't know. I just thought his character was a little bit more complex than that. You know? And so that's why for him, to me, like when he sacrifices himself and everything, it didn't really move me. I was like, ah. Like, Koba, to me, felt more like the real villain in this film. Because he had good reasons, he made his choices, he lived with it. Whereas Gary Oldman's character, I just felt like he was a human. He was just trying to save the human race. He didn't seem like a villain to me. I just, I feel like he really thought he was fighting for the right thing. And I thought his reasons kind of were sound, but I just wish they had delved a little bit more into them, you know? Maybe just more, more screen time would have helped.
0: Well, yeah. Well, this is the the downside of having a film that has a ton of compelling characters is you can't devote oh God. a lot of screen time to, you know, honing out the backstory. I mean, we, but we already have an inkling of we know Caesar's backstory. We know Koba's backstory to some extent. But yeah, I mean, yes, I do agree that Koba is is the villain of the film. I mean, but it, but it's not until that second hour kicks off with um, Koba ki- attempting to kill Caesar, where we see where koba has finally emerged as the true villain of the film i mean cuz him <laughs> him killing carver yeah that's that's one thing i think everybody was hoping carver would die at some point but him <laughs> shooting and trying to kill caesar and it, it goes against one of their central tenets as a society ape not kill ape and by koba violating that tenet there like all bets are off and he's just he's gone off the deep end and he's willing to do whatever he can to make sure his goals are met oh yeah
1: he's a maniac anyone that defied him would die he went total dictator mode and that's when i think he showed his true colors where you knew this is a bad ape and that's why at the end caesar let him die let go he's like you're not an ape
0: no i mean in yeah ape not kill ape uh apes together strong that's their other tenet and, uh, yeah, Caesar's totally right in saying, like, you are not one of us. You aren't willing to abide by the tenets in which that we've established, that we've been able to live in peace for all this time. And mm-hmm. and then you decide to to say, like, oh, well, this isn't working out for me. You're not thinking of the good of the community. All you're doing is thinking about yourself. And, like, that's that's the brilliance of this community because, I mean – and it's emphasized right from the beginning of the film. They're in the, a massive hunting party as a giant clan. They do everything together as a clan. They're teaching their younglings. Everybody's involved in the care of the children. And it seems like every this is a very open society that Caesar has managed to build. It seems like every, anybody can go up and talk to him and, and speak with him and voice an opinion. And, he's the man. Yeah, he's the man. But nobody challenges him except for koba because they respect him they don't fear him they respect him and they love him
1: mm-hmm. they they trust his leadership they he's going to take them to he's going to lead a successful society and he does for many many years for a decade you know it isn't until the pesky humans arise and then koba gets his chance to thwart and take over Oh, well, but it just doesn't last. <laughs> yeah, and
0: I think a lot of this has to do with how we see Andy Serkis play Caesar this time around. And it's it's still an amazing performance, but it's a much more nuanced Caesar than what we saw in Rise. I mean, he's Caesar's much older, he's a father now, and he's been mm-hmm. able to bear this responsibility for over a decade. And it's it's amazing to see... You know, an actor of Andy Circus's caliber just embody a character so much. I mean, it's something that we rarely see in a movie. I mean, the closest example I can come up with is uh, Chadwick Boseman playing uh, T'Challa in the Black Panther as Black Panther. Mm-hmm.
1: I I agree. I think he plays. You just I I enjoyed the comparison. You see Andy Serkis in the first film. He plays such a young, like the youthful. A young kid, almost as an ape, very well. He gets, he nails it down as a young adult, young teen, and then in this you get more of an adult and just his mannerisms, the intellect. Overall, I really respected his work. He's he's a phenomenal artist, and the performance was encapsulating. I really cared about Caesar, and I'm happy he didn't die.
0: I mean, I, I just hope that the academy really starts to reconsider its stance on these performance capture uh, type performances in, in for films like this, because they're just, they're brilliant performances that go unheralded and unrecognized. I know it's
1: not fair. It, I don't get why the Academy doesn't recognize them. Cause I, I really think like, what's the difference because it's a CGI, like Jesus, it just, I, I I agree with you totally. I wish the he should have gotten something for this. I mean, he's given us Gollum. He's given us Caesar. How many more characters does Andy Serkis need to do before he gets that gold?
0: I mean, he probably needs to do like something in human form. But I, I mean, I mean, we <laughs> all know the genius of Andy Serkis. It's time to for him to receive some external validation for once. Truly,
1: I agree. I agree. So I quoted, I commented how the film's kind of different with the acts. How did you feel about the film? Because I felt like there was, the first act was much more subtle and really relishing in the storytelling elements of the film, fleshing out these characters, whereas the second act was very fast-paced. How did you feel?
0: I mean, the film definitely, I think it sticks to the three-act structure. It's just non-traditional. Like, The first hour has its first two acts, and the second act, I think, really begins when malcolm shows up at the at the ape community with his hands up and he and he's begging for to let his group come in and repair the dam that's where i think the second act really starts and then the third act begins when Koba tries to kill caesar but no like it's it's much more like the first act is more like world building it's more it's where we understand the motivations behind what's happening with these characters and why they want to go to the mountain, why they want to fix the dam, you know, what's happening in San Francisco.
1: Yes. It's very, it's, it's a lot more of the world building. And so you can understand all the motivations. Whereas I agree, the second act, it definitely kicks off once Caesars killed or shot by Coba. Then you just see the, uh, madness and chaos ensue which i will say um the battle scenes between the humans and the apes it was shot very well it was very it was it was gritty in a way where they're going you know the apes are on the ground the humans have the high ground and they're shooting bullets at each other and the apes are getting brutally murdered i really enjoyed that um the action wasn't too bewildering until like the end when you know the buildings are like falling, and Koba gets dropped from how many feet? I'm like, wait, where is that at? <laughs> then it got a little crazy.
0: No, that uh, that street battle you were talking about that reminded me a lot of like of Black Hawk Down. Just the the yes. the, the just the the gunfire, the and and the lighting and how the camera was moving. I mean, I love that shot where they're on the, uh, I don't know what kind of vehicle it's called. I'm just going to call it an APC for argument's sake when it's the camera is on the turret and it's just slowly rotating around and you see like the carnage and devastation. And then the, Mm -hmm. the the camera ends rotating as the vehicle is breaking down the door to the community and everybody's being rounded up and, you know, uh, being taken prisoner by Koba and his gang. Yes.
1: Yes, it's very gritty. It's very um, blackhawk down esque, as you said. It reminded me of like um, Saving Private Ryan, Lord of the Rings. It was gritty. It was good. It you really felt like Koba, He wanted to kill these humans. He wanted to enslave them. Great, great direction. Great storytelling. But yeah.
0: then I think we also get the most emotional moment in the film, where you know. Um Malcolm, Ellie and Alexander, they all they find Caesar near death and they bring him back into San Francisco and they take him to his home where he lived with Will and his father. And it's I think the moment was I think it's meant to remind Caesar that humans, you know, they can be kind and they're capable of tremendous generosity and kindness when they're not governed by fear in I mean, it's, it's here at this point of the film that we can also assume that Will and Caroline were, were killed by the virus. But it's so important for Caesar to reconnect with the fact that, yes, while he is an ape, he does know that humans are capable of truly nice and kind things.
1: That was the best part of the film for me. That really struck a chord. And I'm glad that they had him go back to his home and they had the little archive footage and it wasn't too overdone. You know, it was perfect. It was a nice nod to the first film. It really showed well, him. He also
0: has that he has that great moment with his son too, um, telling him that, you know, I'm you know, I I'm I could never be mad at you, I could never be upset at you. I will mm-hmm. always love you. I will always be your father. Um, and <laughs> like James Franco, yeah, he doesn't blame him for signing for siding with Koba. I mean, it's it, it's it's a brilliant moment between. I mean, these two characters who, for the most part of the film, have had such a strained relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. It's such a just great writing, <laughs> great great story. Like it's crazy that a movie about CGI apes has more character development and a compelling story than films that aren't CGI apes, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but I agree with you. Those, that whole scene was fantastic. It was such a emotional part of the film and I think it was needed. It was just great. And then Caesar comes back and he saves the day with his boy.
0: Yeah. And, and, I love how the movie is bookended on these shots of Caesar's eyes. The film Mm -hmm. opens in, pans out on, you know, from Caesar's eyes to, you know, the hunting party. And then it ends the film by zooming in on his eyes and how he's contemplating his future in the coming war that he knows that he can't do anything to stop now. Yeah,
1: because once it starts, it's going to go forever forever. You know, until, well, until we watch the third one. But, (laughs) and then we'll see. But yeah, I know it's, it's really, this film is the tipping point. Once they drew first blood, there's no going back now. And he saw it, he felt it, and he knows it. But I think Caesar's the right man or the right animal ape (laughs) in charge to lead these apes through it. So I know I'm pretty pumped to see it. It was a great closing shot
0: yeah and just such a tender moment too between Malcolm and Caesar, where you know they echo everything that we have been saying, like they almost had it, they almost achieved so peace, they almost achieved cooperation, and it was just that that shot of Malcolm just sinking into the background of just like, you know we tried there's there's nothing we can do now it's it's this is gonna happen, and we can't stop it,
1: yeah, I mean, it's fantastic because it shows how so much. Of society and everything can hinge on such a moment you know how how people individuals can change the course of history and destiny with their actions and you can have all the good in the world and all the people trying their darnest to make everything right but you know all it takes is you know an individual with a strong will the ability to speak and you know some some actions and it can really upset the order of things. You know, yeah. and this film is a perfect depiction of that. They were so close.
0: So close. So <laughs> close, man.
1: I know. I was bummed. <laughs> so about that so close, who, who, Chris, died?
0: Who is your red shirt? <laughs> oh, man. So many people died in this movie. But, um, you God. know, I'm going to have to, you know, my, uh, my pick for uh, red shirt is a character by the name of Terry played by actor uh Lombardo uh Bayer I mean and Terry is one of the the soldiers that that Coba confronts at a uh at what is it Fort point there when they're testing out weapons there at the armory and that actor Lombardo Bayer I mean he seems to play characters whose sole purpose is to just die in like television shows and I would love <laughs> to see him survive a show or a movie, just for a little while, just so we can appreciate like the the, the decent acting that is provided by Lombardo by air.
1: Yes, are you talking about those guys that Co- Koba messes with? They meet him the first yeah. time. Yes, yes, yes. Those were mine as well. Those guys, because I just felt like it wasn't fair. They were nice to him, and Koba totally used them and just freaking murders them. Ugh, it wasn't fair. They even they gave
0: him booze. I
1: mean, what else could, the, could an ape want?
0: I mean, my, uh, I almost picked uh, Ash, the, uh, the ape who was shot at the beginning of the movie, yes. and then who Koba threw off uh, from the balcony. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, didn't this, guy go, didn't this ape go through enough? First he was shot, and now he's just thrown from a great height. What, what happened here? I know. He just couldn't catch a break. That
1: Ash. I know. He was, he was right in there with me as well. We both agree. Those were my two as well because it just wasn't fair. The guy was just standing up to uh, Koba, and he's like, maybe, you know, this guy's going to be a little bit more democratic. We've killed enough. And he's like, nope. Off you go. It's like, all right. We, we see where this man's at. Koba, Koba's out for blood. <laughs>
0: Uh, so those were our red shirts. Uh, did you have a choice for a lens flare, Sean?
1: My lens flare? No, actually, I was pretty, nothing really bothered me with the film. You know, obviously outside of, um, I think like Carver, that guy, he was just kind of a trope to me, his character and how he just hated the apes and, and then why Malcolm brought him back is still befuddling but obviously you have to advance the plot some way because there is no perfect movie so he would be my lens flare if there is one how about you
0: you know i mean we haven't talked enough about just how great the visual effects are in this movie i mean but there is one moment that like that actually kind of bothered me and as a as somebody who watches these films enough, like I'm able to see bad CGI, but I'm able to see good CGI. But this was an instance of bad CGI. And there's a <laughs> moment in the film where Malcolm has gone back to his uh, his community. He's looking for medical supplies to help Caesar, and he looks into the mezzanine and he sees a gorilla picking up a human woman, and she's just like kicking her legs and flailing about. And I'm just like, oh, that's just some awful CGI right there. What were you doing, Wedo? Like, what is happening here? <laughs> oh my god it's funny I, it's such a nitpicky thing i know but it's like audiences these days are so smart they're able to see good cgi and bad cgi like what's some of the first things you'll hear people talk about is after they see a movie's like oh those computer graphics were great oh. and then some movies <laughs> like oh those computer graphics sucked
1: <laughs> but you know what? i think maybe it's just a testament to the film when the film's good and all you have to then nitpick is like, all right, was the CGI that good or just okay? I think then you're on the right track. So that could be a pro.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a I mean, <laughs> I didn't have any filmmaking uh, qualms about this film. My only qualm no. was this one brief moment where the CGI looked like crap. That's, that's, that is my one pause for concern. So yes, for the most part, yeah, this is an amazing movie. well good 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 now what did the fans think of it oh man well thankfully like there weren't too many people who had gripes on imdb but uh this week in toxic fandom courtesy of imdb so when koba steals the automatic rifles they are set to rapid fire but when he shoots caesar the rifle only fires a single shot so this is somebody who isn't too familiar with the idea of uh of a shot selection on a, on a military style rifle, because you do have the option of setting it to single fire, rapid fire or burst fire. I believe is an option on military, on military grade (laughs) weapons. It's
1: so stupid. It's so dumb. Why? I just don't understand why. That's what they took. Oh, That's hilarious. You watch any
0: Vietnam movie or any like modern war film and you see like characters at least once switch from like safe to rapid fire or single shot. Like there's just like a flick of a switch near their trigger. Like that's what they do. Like they can easily switch from rapid to single fire. That's how these weapons are designed. Exactly.
1: Unless they didn't think that he knew how. So maybe that's what they were saying. That's what they were alluding to. But still, it's like, come on. Have you seen any of Vin Diesel's movies or The Rock? Get out of town.
0: Yeah, they don't use guns because their arms are basically weapons anyway. They don't,
1: they don't shoot anybody. Exactly. They just kill people with their looks and with their iron fists.
0: I haven't God. seen Dwayne Johnson use a gun in the movie in probably like 10 years. So, Dwayne Johnson, there he, doesn't, he
1: doesn't need to. All he has to do is suplex people, and then that's it. Or just give them a rock bottom, and then they die. He doesn't even do that. I don't even think Dwayne The Rock Johnson does wrestling moves in his movies. He's probably <laughs> like, you don't pay me enough to do this. No, probably not. <laughs> but as Clint Eastwood says, enough of that. <laughs> so this movie, how? This movie did pretty good at the box office, if I'm correct. It grossed over $700 million, right?
0: Yeah, holy hell, this was a, a very, very well-received movie in 2014. So, yeah, like you were saying, grossed over $700 million, was the eighth highest grossing film that year. Um, it's got a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Got a 79 on Metacritic, got a cinema score of an A minus. So yeah, high marks all around from the from the internet review crowd. Uh, mm-hmm. Was actually the number one film at the box office two weeks in a row and uh, managed to dethrone Guardians of the Galaxy because this was 2014. So Marvel gave us uh, two of the best films in the MCU and Guardians of the Galaxy and Captain America, the Winter Soldier. So banner year for uh, blockbuster films uh, in 2014 uh nominated for uh an Oscar for best visual effects, once again repeating what it uh what uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes accomplished. However, it did not win. It lost to Interstellar, so there is a pattern that is emerging with the Planet <laughs> of the Apes reboot films.
1: Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. But I cannot blame them. Interstellar. Yeah, I do agree that uh yeah
0: Interstellar definitely deserved the, the Oscar that year. But uh, but the, the kicker for me was this movie was nominated for eight, eight Saturn Awards. You want to know how many it won?
1: How many? One? Zero. It did not win oh. a single
0: Saturn Award.
1: Let me guess, Interstellar won the
0: Interstellar all. won a majority of them, and Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. won a few other ones. But it was nominated for some pretty big categories. Best Science Fiction Film, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Andy Serkis, best music best special effects and it didn't win a single one the level of disrespect for dawn of the planet of the apes is staggering for the award people come on here
1: <laughs> what's going on here well we'll just see uh in time how they each hold up and then which one will be hailed as the better one right
0: i mean yeah we'll see um i mean we're still a bit uh i think we're still too close removed to see like how you know what the true legacy yeah. of these films are going to look like but i mean this by all accounts this was you know a worthy successor to rise of the planet of the apes i don't think anybody expected this film to be as good as it was and obviously with the success of this film you know a sequel uh war for the planet of the apes was going to be was would be released in 2017 which is you know next up for us but it's um but yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is a great time to get into our uh, our rating, Sean.
1: Yes, our rating. So, Chris, with our unique sale of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what would you rate Dawn of the Planet of the Apes?
0: You know, I... I love the darker tone and mood that this film takes, and I think it it definitely checks off one of the boxes for sequel rules is make your sequel dark. Make your second film in the series dark. That's what Empire Strikes Back did. That's what Spider-Man 2 did. But and I love the fact that the stakes are raised. We know right off of the right from the gun what is at stake here in this film and we finally get a true sense of what caesar is fighting towards and how he wants to coexist with malcolm's group the film offers so many of these tender moments that are incredible i mean the the scene where the um, caesar's baby interacts with ellie and alex and and so many great moments that like oh man i just can't i can't summon without getting emotional and there's these And these deep emotional characters on the ape side, I mean, they remind us that they're not just animals. These are, this is a very complex group of people of, of characters that we have to acknowledge. And me personally, I'd watch this movie in a heartbeat, but at the end of the day, it just doesn't have that same entertainment factor as the first film did. I still love this movie. Don't get me wrong, but because of that lack of entertainment quality, I'm going to call Dawn of the Planet of the Apes a Wood own What about you, Sean? What do you, what do you give to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes?
1: <clears throat> I'm going to agree with you. I would put it as a wood own um, for very similar reasons. I think it's just missing a little bit of the uh, energy that was in the first one. Still fantastic. I, it just floors me every single time. I cannot believe that a movie with CGI apes has such compelling characters and is so well written and it's better almost in a way than most live action films which is kind of perturbing to me in a way because you know that's just crazy that i care more about apes than uh, human characters in movies but i think that's a testament to the film the writing fantastic the action like I said, was great at that one scene, a little bit over the top at the end, especially with Koba's death, but no film is perfect. It's missing that, for me, that perfection where I could, you know, just say this is amazing. I would host a viewing party, but it's up there and it's a fantastic film with a great story and it is a great sequel indeed. So kudos to... The director, uh, Matt Reeves, kudos to the actors. I would put it as a would-owned.
0: All right, so we've got high marks all around for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And uh, we already know what our movie for next time is going to be. We're going to finish off the Planet of the Apes reboot trilogy. We're going to be doing war for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, Woody Harrelson this time around. Matt Reeves is back as director. And, of course, Andy Serkis returns to play Caesar. So that's going to be our movie for next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. That is the best place to do it, and it really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are all over social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Force Fed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time.